Hey, welcome to another episode of The Scrum, WGBH News' political podcast. I'm Adam Riley, and for this episode, I'm joined by my colleague Peter Kadzis. Peter, greetings. Greetings and salutations. And also, I'm very happy to report by Boston Globe columnist Joan Venaki, who's been on a bit of a tear recently when it comes to raising eyebrows about local politics. Two weeks ago, she basically said Boston Mayor Marty Walsh has lost his mojo and might be in trouble if and when he seeks re-election in 2021. More recently, Venaki took vigorous issue with her colleagues on the Globe's editorial board about a possible Elizabeth Warren presidential run. In an unsigned editorial on December 7th, the Globe said Warren shouldn't run in 2020 because she is too divisive and missed her moment in 2016. Three days later, Venaki wrote a column that began, if Elizabeth Warren really wants to run for president, she should go for it and not let the fickle press undercut her resolve. Joan Venaki, as always, great to have you here. Nice to be here, I think. <laughs> so let's start with the Marty Walsh column that you wrote and then get to Elizabeth Warren and her possible candidacy uh, a little bit later. What was the response from Mayor Walsh when you wrote kind of a blistering assessment of the state of his mayoralty. Well, to be honest, I never heard directly from Mayor Walsh, which is a bit of a change for him because in the past, when I've written something that he's doesn't agree with or doesn't like, um, he'll call me. In fact, it usually happens when I'm on the orange line after I've filed and it goes online and I'm just about heading out of state and he will call and <laughs> let me know. And I'll say, Mr. Mayor, I can't talk right now because it's noisy and there are too many people on board. I haven't heard from him directly, um, but I don't think he liked it very much, which is totally his right. When you say you haven't heard from him directly, who have you heard from? I'm not asking you to outsource this or anything like that, but how does word filter back if you don't get your usual direct call from the mayor? How does word get to a columnist like you that the mayor doesn't like what you just wrote about him? Well, in this case, I just happened to have a conversation the next day with someone who I know is in contact with him. And this person didn't like the column either, and neither did the mayor. But again, you know, Mayor Walsh is my fourth mayor, White, Flynn, Menino, Walsh. And I know they were all in that category of, of not being thrilled with things that I wrote. And with Kevin White, that was before I was columnist. So, <laughs> One more question for you, and then I'll let Peter get in here. Did you hear what, if anything, irked Mayor Walsh the most about your column? Because you talked about a, a few different things, areas in which you saw him maybe not falling down on the job. That wasn't, you know, those weren't your words, those are mine, but where you saw him stumbling, were there any uh, particular points he took umbrage? I, I don't know the particulars, and I would love to have that conversation with him. I'm you know, certainly open to talking to, to mayors and governors whenever they want to talk. I think he probably objected to the idea that I would have cast him as being on a, on a downhill role. And there's certainly another side to every story. And believe me, I totally understand that a column, you're arguing a case kind of like a legal brief, and you're you know, cherry picking and picking and choosing the points that you want to make. Um, I just felt there was enough. You know, In journalism, three is a trend. I think I had four things that I cited that made me feel like, wow, it was just a year ago that he was reelected really, by a really large margin since then. I do feel he's lost a little bit of his mojo and, and the feeling that he has his finger on the pulse. Joan, let me just ask you to continue in that vein for a second. The trigger, if you will, for your column was the Frontage Road City Council hearing. 
Could you explain to the listeners exactly what that is? Probably not, no. There's a piece of land that on Frontage Road that a number of years ago they were talking about um, as a soccer stadium for the Olympics, which Mayor Walsh was pitching. Since then, it's somewhere in, in the back rooms or in Boston planning circles, there seems to be a plan to develop this land, to sell the land, which is public land, or put the land out to bid, and have it developed as a soccer stadium. And what caught my attention was actually a Globe news story, an excellent Globe news story, that basically said City Councilor Michelle Wu had some issues with the process, and that she was holding this hearing, and she wanted to hear from interested parties, including including people who were not too happy about the proposal, and to have it come out in the open and say, what should we do with this land, and, and what direction should we be headed? I thought that was really interesting because it, it doesn't often happen or it hasn't happened all that often in the past that a member of the city council would be that kind of out front about challenging a mayor and holding this hearing. I mean, it has happened in the past. It's not like it's unprecedented. Jimmy Kelly did it with Menino on the seaport. It's not like it's never happened. But I thought in this particular moment in time when the politics of the city seem to be changing, when Ayanna Presley can beat a Michael Capuano, it, I just thought it, it's interesting that somebody in the city council would seize this issue, hold a hearing, and kind of say, Mr. Mayor, what's going on here? We the people have the right to know, and I happen to agree with that. Yeah, it's a fascinating case, the Frontage Road one, because it touches on so many citywide issues. For example, there are the, the environmentalists who think that the land, which is relatively low-lying, should be left fallow as a floodplain should there the rising tides or a hurricane or something sit. Now, that's an interesting idea. It's certainly one the mayor has put forward himself. It does call to question, in my mind, just how committed the city is to many of these anti-flood rising water initiatives. Pro-resiliency measures. Pro, that much, much better put, Adam. I mean, my own extremely cynical view is it that's fine for land where there's no money to be made. And by the way, that's not an attack on Mayor Walsh. That's the way all mayors have thought. To tell you, I haven't read anything in a long time that's got me thinking so much about municipal politics in Boston, as your column. In some ways, to me, the frontage road issue slash dispute is more reflective of uh, Michelle Wu than it might be of the mayor, although I'm not disputing what mm-hmm. you say. And you touched on this. You know, city councilors, even though they, you know, have independence, are usually loath to go after the mayor. And I know talking to some of her colleagues, through gritted teeth, they were sort of supporting her, but... Let's just say it was sort of donned inconvenient for some of them. Well, I went to the hearing the next day uh, after the column had run, and quite honestly, I'm not sure if the other counselors knew I was there. They probably did because they went out of their way to make it clear that someone had written something terrible in the Globe that they didn't agree with. Oh, I mean, really? they, they seem to uh, want to publicly state that the Globe, and by that they, I think they meant me, were, was trying to stir up trouble and make an issue and make it seem like they were fighting with the mayor when that isn't true. 
Michelle Wu didn't speak to that. She didn't say anything along those lines, at least while I was there. But other counselors who were there did. And, I mean, I just think that she— What a bunch of wins. I know. I thought, wow, here I am trying to empower you guys. And instead instead you want to say, oh, Mr. Mayor, we're not—please don't think that um, we agree with Joan Bonacchi on anything. But I thought her phrasing of it, like, what's the highest and best use of this land— I don't really have an opinion on it. A, a soccer stadium may be the highest and best use of the land. I just happen to be a believer in transparency, open debate. I think there are legitimate concerns about traffic. There's a lot of nimbyism in these discussions. I'm open to that as well. But I just think, hey, this is a really interesting piece of property. And people that testified said, who is Bo- this is a question of who is Boston for? And there is a really compelling argument that when you say a soccer stadium, you are making a statement based on the constituency for soccer about who Boston is for. Or hip the, young professionals. By the way, I say or, that as a non-hip, older, semi-professional well, who would like to come in from the suburbs to see a game in the city. But go I ahead. was thinking not so much hip young professionals as maybe my stereotype of a soccer fan is a Latino community. Not necessarily the crowd that goes to Foxborough. I mean, you could say that it's a different demographic and that it it makes perfect sense for Boston to open itself to that sports front. I just feel like, well, let's have that discussion. Let's not have this happen behind closed doors. And all of a sudden, the land is sold. And the next thing you know, Bob Kraft is building a soccer stadium. I was waiting for the K (laughs) word to come up. (laughs) But it, it does feel, it does have that feel. And maybe... My instincts are wrong, but it has that feel. And I just felt that this is 2018. Can't we get past that feel that we already know the end of the story? I'm not sure, as a Boston resident, you know I tend to take Boston politics much more personally than I do state or national politics because I can't hide the fact that I have skin in the game. I'm not sure what the best use of that land is. And frankly, I know that the BRA... Uh, whatever you know, it's called what, now. Exactly, <laughs> whatever it's called. I, I, I still call the Stadler Hilton, you know, the Stadler Hilton. Uh, I'll let people try to figure out what <laughs> hotel I'm talking about I was about racking there. my brain. What's he talking um, about? Park Plaza Hotel, where my parents honeymooned when it was known as the Stadler Hilton. You know, it'll always be the Stadler to me. Anyway, what we see here, I think, is a bit of a clash between Mayor Walsh isn't really doing anything any more high-handed than previous mayors have done. You know, his redevelopment authority, development authority, whatever in God's name we call the new thing, you know, is preparing to put it to bid and sort of acting as if everything's okay to develop this, and the city council has yet to transfer the land or check off the box. And that's, you know, fairly standard operating procedure. The mayor's office is, you know, I've covered all the same mayors that you have, Joan. And, you know, they're all high-handed. And, uh, you know, every now and then the, the council takes a little umbrage. But on the other hand, you know, Michelle Wool reminded me of the, this is the days of sort of Freddie Langone or Larry DeCaro when he was on the council, where occasionally councilors would question what the mayor was up to. Right. And I mean, I do think that Mayor Walsh has the reputation, and this is not necessarily a bad thing. He has a reputation for going full speed ahead on development. We have taller buildings than we've ever had before. 
the sensibilities of old Boston. And I realize when I say that, that old Boston is no longer about shadows and wind and, uh, oh, we can't cast a shadow here or there. And scale, right? And scale, that that's totally out the window, for better or worse. I mean, some of the old constrictions probably were silly. You know, personally, I still do care a little bit about shadows and wind and height and, and density. But in the interests of, of development, I mean, Boston is just a different city than it well, was. Is, and it, it has to be. I mean, it has to change to, to grow. There's also a difference in mayoral style. Ray Flynn and Tom Menino listened or pretended to listen before they acted. Mayor Walsh tends to act and then listen afterwards. Right. And I've said this before, and listen, that's just part of his style. I no longer, when I said it several years ago in connection with the Olympics, I meant it as a criticism. Now, it's not. It's just a reflection on the way he operates. And some people who are familiar with both the State House and City Hall say that they see in Mayor Walsh much more of a State House frame of mind of operating. You know, in no way am I suggesting, you know, DeLeo's involved in any of these decisions, but, you know, a Senate president or certainly a Speaker of the House more or less makes up his or her mind and then brings the troops along with them. I think there's something to that. Mayor Walsh comes from a different political heritage than did Mayor Menino. Uh, Ray Flynn sort of straddled, you know, straddled both. Well, Ray Flynn also was responsible. I, I think Ray Flynn tried to link development more to um, the neighborhoods through linkage and things like that, which is you know, a concept that I think is a really good one. With neighborhoods getting specific financial benefits, right, from new projects? Right. See, to me, the unspoken threat, if you will, to the mayor is that you you look at his not very impressive list of endorsements in the last election, wind, you sense a new wind blowing through the city. Listen, if an election were held today, he'd be reelected. But things are changing in ways that, you know, I sense it. I can't put my finger on it. And I'm not sure. I mean, if the election were held today, I think it depends on who runs against him, well, quite the, honestly. I, I meant right. if there was a rematch of the old one. Rematch. I mean, Tito Jackson, obviously. Tito would have done a little better, but I don't think no, he would have won. No, I mean, I just, again, it's like it's just something that you feel, that the city is changing and that there's, again, I mean, Marty Walsh is not an old person. He's 51 years old. I keep on looking it up. Sometimes I just feel that he's more old school in his approach to politics and the city, that the city may be ready for something different. It seems poised for a different kind of leader. And that may happen in 10 years. I may not be around to write about it. I never really finished my thought about Michelle Wu. Now, by the way, Councilwoman Wu did not do anything out of character in the way she handled this. But I remember when Ayanna Presley announced for Capuano's congressional seat, the second thing I thought of was, wow, where does this leave Michelle Wu? I'm talking about Wu as a political commodity, not as a human being here. Okay, um, you know, another council member happens to be a woman, you know, makes a pretty bold bid and, as we all know now, succeeded. I do wonder where 
it's hard to move on from the Boston City Council. And it, uh, it, it just makes me wonder where Wu's head is at long term. Well, let's put one possibility on the table. Do you think that this willingness to go toe-to-toe with the mayor publicly is a sign that she might be thinking about running against him in 2021? I have no inside information, but I would say yes. I mean, I think she's, it looks to me, I've not had this conversation with her, so it's not based on anything other than just watching. I think she's kind of testing the waters. Um, If you just sort of follow what she tweets, she's taken on some issues like the tea and some other issues where you could say she's sort of staking out some turf. There's also the situation that Walsh himself is being mentioned as somebody who's thinking about running for governor or Senate. Um, so who's to say he runs again? There could That's be, a good point. There could be an open <clears throat> seat. One never knows. Peter, does that sound right to you? Yeah, that sounds about right. That sounds about perfect. Let's move on in that case to Elizabeth Warren. Joan, I don't want to put you on the spot in an uncomfortable way here. I just want to put you on the spot a little tiny bit. So I'm going to ask at the outset a question that I think gives you plenty of wiggle room. How unusual is it for you as a columnist to write a piece that seems to call out your colleagues on the editorial board, the way your piece about Warren running seemed to call them out uh, a few days ago. I would disagree that I was calling out my colleagues. Um, I couldn't write... I was afraid you would say that. All right. <laughs> I couldn't write what I wrote without citing the editorial because it was the inspiration for the column. But, you know, quite honestly, I am not... Even though I'm a part of the editorial board, I don't always agree with all of our editorial positions, and I have often written columns that are different than the editorial position. In this case, I had to cite it, and I and I did link to it, and I was kind of responding to it. I also think that people, I'm not going to speak especially, you know, I think Shirley Leung should speak to the actual editorial. She is the interim editor of the editorial page. Um, she's the person for, you know, responsible. I was there when they, you know, decided to go in that direction, so it's not like I wasn't part of the decision-making process. I didn't <clears throat> play a role in writing it, however. And I, if you talk to Shirley, I don't want to speak for her, yeah. but I think she would say that, the editorial doesn't say Elizabeth Warren should not run. It's fair to draw that conclusion. However, the editorial basically started out by saying, gee, Deval Patrick did something interesting here. He looked at it and took another and decided no. See, my recollection is that the editorial says Deval Patrick knew when to say no to a presidential bid. Wouldn't it be nice if other people knew that? Like, say, Elizabeth Warren, who is too divisive a figure to run for president. Well, they should have run four years ago and shouldn't run uh, next time. Let, let, let me get the exact wording out here. Thank you. Deval Patrick knew when to call it quits on a presidential bid. Other politicians take note. Now, I should also note that this was written on December 7th, the anniversary of Pearl Harbor. And all I can think of is Torah, 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 Elizabeth Warren. It was a sneak attack on Senator Warren. By the way, I I do think that Warren is a divisive figure, or can be, but so is Bernie Sanders. What I took away from the editorial was... Geez, it struck me about the of the the mindset of the Democratic Party in trying to manage somewhat crookedly the Bernie Sanders campaign as he 
took on Hillary Clinton. Now, push them to the margins. Yeah. In the last now, now by the way, the, the Globe's doing no such thing here. I'm just saying it strikes me as part of that mindset of let's purify the party. Let's keep it going in the right direction. Let's sandpaper down any bumps. Let's and re- let's remove. let elites decide who is and who isn't a viable candidate. Yeah, and right? really, that was kind of what inspired me. I mean. To me, it's well. This you're is, one of those people I, who think that democracy I, should really work. I actually right? do. I mean, I just look at Jeez. it. And, I look at it and say, why should the media? Why should the pundits decide who gets in or doesn't get in, or who's a good candidate or not? We totally underestimated Trump's viability. We thought there was no way, and I include myself in that. Yep. We thought there was no way that Donald Trump could be the president of the United States. And we wake up every day, and we're still in shock that he's there, and still can't believe that he's president. So, after we, but we've learned no lessons. We're still trying to say um, Joe Biden's too old, Elizabeth Warren's too divisive. So, so that no, was, well, that was kind. Of, I was sort of respond. That was sort of my incentive. I'd seen the Frank Bruni column saying, I like Joe Biden, but he shouldn't run. Um, I see the pumping up of Beto O'Rourke. And I just think, wow, I mean, can't just, we won't ever, but can't we just ever let the voters decide these things? I'll tell you, Beto, I'm envious of that flat stomach. But (laughs) the thing about Warren, who, as I said before, I have reservations about, Warren has something that only a couple of other national politicians in the Democratic Party have. And I reluctantly include Bernie Sanders, who was not a Democrat in this conversation. She, um, Bernie Sanders, Beto O'Rourke, they have this independent base of small donors, people who give $50 or less, or me spread all over the country, and they can raise boatloads of money doing this. That is a real political asset. It's tangible, and it's hard to factor in. You know, I actually think, based on no evidence whatsoever, that it's pressure from a subtle pressure, maybe even imagined pressure, from her donor base, you know, which are individual citizens, not big corporations, that might be motivating Elizabeth Warren in part. You know, all these people have given me money. All these people must be sending her emails or something. Ron Elizabeth, she has a constituency. The other thing she has and it is that she has proposed, you know, two major legislative initiatives. One in the summer, her um, two-pronged attack on on reforming corruption, stopping the revolving door in Washington, D.C., in a a form of uh, corporation reform to make corporations more nationally responsible. Now, there are some aspects of those proposals, you know, which are a little twilighty, but they're serious economic proposals. I mean, this is the sort of legislation that, you know, uh, Senator Wagner might have proposed, you know, back in the New Deal days. Not exactly this. The other is her foreign policy plan. You know, listen, when she may be divisive, but when it comes to putting forward a plan for running for president, she's way ahead of everyone else, including um, the ex-vice president. Can I just ask you a question? Sure. When you say, why do you think she's divisive? 
listening what's your, to, to, what's to, your to, definition of divisive? I'm just curious. Uh, in locker room terms, she pisses off too many people. In a way, that's what I mean. She's also very far to the left, according to some people. I'm reacting to other people's reactions. I don't find her divisive, but I know other people do. I'm actually really glad that you pushed back on that a little bit, Joan, both here now with Peter and in your column. Because when I read that in the original Globe column, uh, the unsigned one, uh, my thought was this is a ridiculous metric by which to be judging her. We saw Barack Obama, who was a moderate Democrat who aimed to be a great conciliator and unifier of Republicans and Democrats. We saw him become incredibly divisive, whatever that means. I mean, I guess here I'm using it to mean half the country decided he was the devil incarnate. I don't think that there is a Democrat out there who is going to run, who is going to make a third of Republican voters say, oh, yeah, I like the cut of his or her jib. You know, they're, they're my kind of politician. I just don't think that's the way Amer- uh, American some, politics no, no, happens to work right now. Listen, reason. it's not Republican. Hmm. It's independence. Okay. It's independence. So who's the unifying figure, the theoretical saying, unifying I'm figure. not saying there is. Obama ran as a unifying figure. Right. It figure. wasn't a red America. It wasn't a blue America. It was a purple no, America. No, I mean, but and Obama, you, right. Hillary Clinton was not a unifying force. I don't think Bernie Sanders would have been a unifying force. But for some reason, Bernie Sanders, I think, um, is not seen as, maybe I'm wrong, I don't think he's seen as divisive as Elizabeth Warren is. And I'm not going to just make this all about gender because I, I'm genuinely kind of curious about it. I ask people all the time, and I, from the right and the left, I you get the same word about Elizabeth Warren. She's divisive. You also hear the word shrill a lot, which which is a bit of a, you know, a gender-charged word. But Sanders and uh, Warren, in terms of positions, are pretty similar. Yet I don't think people saw Bernie Sanders as divisive. Maybe it's I just saw like the, gra- the I, grandfatherly affect, the deep voice. I mean, there there's just something different about his approach and, and his uh, rhetoric. The, he, he has the problem with what we're all talking about, and it's a problem for me too, and it's a problem with the Globe editorial, and it's not a problem with your column, is it's too soon. It's too soon to be saying who should be dropping out. Uh, what was it Mao said, let a hundred flowers bloom? You know, l- let's go forward. Let's let people run. It's really hard for me to, I mean, I think you're right. It, it's almost impossible for me to argue with you there. But let me play devil's advocate just a little bit and mention one point that came up uh, in your column, Joan, which I thought was important. I can't remember if it was in the unsigned one. The way that Elizabeth Warren handled that DNA test rollout, as you pointed out, Joan, suggested a a kind of a fundamental failure of political calculation. She thought this was going to be this masterstroke, and it turned out to be anything but. Is it fair for the three of us to say that that should give people who like the idea of Warren making a presidential run uh, some pause as she decides what she's going to do? Well, I'd just like to be, know who the person was that told her to do that because I'm guessing there's some strategist somewhere who doesn't want his or her name attached to uh, to that way of unrolling the information. Yeah, I mean, the divisiveness is a lot of it. People may not want to accept it or, or acknowledge it has to do with this whole issue of her heritage, right, and how honest she's been about it. Um and she kind of has misplayed that. If she had been more forthright about it back when she ran against Scott Brown, maybe she could have 
put it to rest. But instead, six years later, uh, people are still saying that she, you know she listed her name in a directory as as Native American and questioning whether that's the only reason why she got hired. And people on both the right and the now, left. Right are now, she's riled up. The le- now she's yeah. riled up the left. Yeah, and it, a lot of it has to do, I think, with back in the '90s when she did that. I mean, the world's evolved since then in how how we culturally think about people's ethnicity and heritage. What might have been totally acceptable back there, and I think people forget about that, is now very different. That's a terrific point. There's so much presentism in our judgments about the handling of social and cultural issues right, right. now. There was no such thing as cultural appropriation back in the 90s. At least if there were, I missed it. But now it's a real thing. Yes, the way she handled that issue should give people pause. But what's done is done. I have a perhaps somewhat eccentric view of the original sin, if you will. Look, here's Elizabeth Warren, a a child of the working class, if you could even say that, the near-do-well working class, goes to night school, climbs her way up the greasy pole, gets to UPenn, and I think she sees, wow, you know, I believe she honestly believed she had Cherokee blood. Says, wow, I can use you know, I, I can tap into my family heritage to help myself do even better. And in a sort of unself-conscious act, just signed on. Is she responsible for that? You bet. But all I'm saying is that I'm willing to say that there was a, a, a probably a, a rather naive motive that has taken on somewhat sinister plans. It's, it's not unlike Richard Nixon in the cloth coat and the help he took from political supporters. Wait, what is this? This is a this is Nixon. You, you know, Nixon had to give the checker speech because he supposedly had a slush fund. Not supposed, you know, he had a slush fund, and he went out and he made this maudlin checker checker speech. Yeah. Everyone said it was maudlin, but you know what? It worked. After the election, that was a hit job. The Democrats leaked the information to the New York Post. It almost cost Nixon his political career. He was almost dumped from the national ticket. After the election, in history has since found that Adlai Stevenson himself had a very similar slush fund. This was the day before organized campaign finance laws and stuff. Well, I'm going to stay away from Nixon, but I'm going to get back to what you... But but all I... I agree with what you said. I mean... And she never really told that story, and she may never be able to tell that story. But a person who went to a public university, who went to Rutgers, ended up at Harvard Law School. And this, if you went through the listing of Harvard Law School professors, I don't know that there's a single one that has that background. There's no question in my mind, I mean, not that, that Elizabeth Warren, she deserves to be a professor at Harvard Law School. She's She's brilliant. She's smart. I mean, she's all the reviews of her as a teacher are excellent. Um, but right, somewhere back in the 90s, she probably did decide if I put my name in this directory, somebody will look at it and I might get an interview that I might not have gotten. I mean, nobody has confirmed that, but it just seems like that could have been a logical thought. Is that a mortal sin? Is that Does that make somebody unelectable? To me up against Donald Trump and his lying and immorality, it's nothing. But some people just can't let it go. Since we're talking a lot about what Warren might end up doing or what she might end up not doing, 
When do you two think we're going to know? When is she going to make a final decision? There was a Politico piece a couple days ago that suggested that she was basically, you know, she'd reached a point where everything was set up in New Hampshire. She was good to go. Her team is assembled and waiting. She just needs to decide whether she's going to jump in or not. So when's she going to make that call? Well, I hate I don't have any inside in, information on that. I mean, it sounds like from the political piece, she's ready to go, whether she's going to not go because of a Globe editorial. I mean, yeah, I would I, be disappointed if that if that I think that yeah, let her go. Let it, let's see a year from now. We'll be heading for the Iowa caucus, right? Yeah, yeah I, it's coming up so fast. It's I, crazy. I, I expect her to continue to act as if she's running for president in a low key sort of way. When and if she declares, I, I don't know. I know, and it could just be that in this world that we're in right now, um, that the voters will be looking for just a new face and younger people. And it could just, so let the voters decide that Biden and Warren and Sanders are, have had their moment in its past. And with that, the time has come to wrap up this installment of The Scrum. Joan Vernaki, thanks a ton for joining me and Peter. It was really good to have you here talking about this stuff. Well, thanks for inviting me. And as always, thanks to you for taking the time to listen. We'd love it if you subscribed to The Scrum, if you haven't already, at Apple Podcasts or whatever other podcast tool you happen to use. We'd also love to hear from you about this discussion and anything else that might be on your mind. The best way to find us is on Twitter. Peter is at Kadzis. I'm at Riley Adam. And Joan, remind me, you are? Uh, Twitter, uh, at Joan underscore Vinaki. All right. Our engineer for this episode was John Parker. And as usual, we got crucial production help from Gary Mott. I'm Adam Riley. The Scrum is a production of WGBH News. Mm-hmm.